morning, everybody. If we're honest, I think that we would all admit that we, uh, we need markers in our lives. Like, not, <laughs> yeah, we need to color more. Um, no, we need markers in our life. We need, we need moments. We need, um, I mean, think of the Old Testament and the people of Israel stacking stones, right? Remembering moments, remembering places in their life that got moved. And um, one of those for, the, for hundreds and hundreds of years has been signifying the beginning of Lent. And in the calendar, this is 40 days out from Easter. Now, 40 days, if you've read any part of Scripture before, you know is a very significant unit of time. And so what the church has done, what, and it just doesn't belong, this tradition does not belong to any one tradition, uh, what the church has done for hundreds and hundreds of years is mark that moment um, with a remembrance of our humanity, with our um, finiteness, um, with our brokenness. And so this Wednesday, we're going to have a very brief but um, uh, wonderful gathering on the west side of the building, because um, the youth will be over here. And we're going to just kind of mark that moment. We're going to mark that in our lives. Um, so I'd encourage you to come. Uh, very, be very simple, uh, but it'll be a time of reflection and prayer and and marking in our lives. So I'd encourage you to be a part of that. We're going to take our offering. And uh, if you're new to this place, you know, what we say just about every single time is, you know, we're not after your money. Um, we, this is for us as a family to be a part of kind of what God's doing and worship in that way. Yes. Oh, I'm so sorry. Six, 630. Yeah. Correct, Mandy? 630 on Wednesday. And um, it'll be here, What's, yeah, and on the west side. So if you come on this side, you're probably going to end up be playing dodgeball or whatever. But if you go that way, um, we'll be over there, okay? Um, you guys ready? Are you guys caffeinated? We got work. <laughs> oh, I need more caffeine myself. Um, we're going to get started on our our. our really the first day of our Romans get, uh, series. And so I'm going to begin uh, just with a little bit of, of context. Um, we're going to start in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. <laughs> yeah, here we go. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Romans, we're going to do this in parts. If you've read Romans before, if you've been around church before, you know that this is one big, heavy, thick letter. It is, for some, you may have the experience of it being kind of cold, heavy, a systematic theology right? Um, you've maybe seen it used to win arguments or convince people of something. Um, anybody familiar with the Romans Road 
kind of evangelistic tool (laughs) where you walk someone through Romans and you use verses to create kind of a story. Um, I'm not making fun. I'm just, (laughs) just saying that this has been a part of our church kind of liturgy as Americans. This letter has a bit of a reputation, actually. It can be kind of intimidating. Uh, We preached on, I I taught on Romans chapter 8, maybe eight years ago. Haven't touched it, the rest of it. Not that I didn't want to, but there was a lot for me I was also sorting out. Like, what is this letter? Is it like this group thinks, and it's just this heavy theological, systematic theology? Or is there something more to it? Um, it's, you know, it's been used by big names in church history. So Augustine, fourth century church scholar, one of the first big, big names in church scholarship, he was like a playboy. He was just doing whatever, just, you know, very hedonistic, and he kind of ran into himself a little bit, and um, he did this thing. I don't know if this is rumors true, but he did one of those kind of like, just open the Bible to wherever it's at and read a verse kind of things, um, which is weird because there wasn't, it wasn't in Bible form. It was scrolls, so I, that's why I don't know if this is true, but rumor has it he, wrote, he opened up to Romans 13.13. 13. And it just hit him like a ton of bricks. And he had this big conversion moment. Martin Luther, in the 16th century, actually was reading Romans while on the toilet in, at the top of a tower, which would be good for gravity and plumbing. But I don't know why I get into that. Um, he's reading Romans 117. And he just has this awakening in his life. And it leads Martin Luther to start pushing back on some things that he was involved with, with the Catholic Church and how they read scripture. And so there's just a lot of history with this. But it's a heavy letter. Heavy letter and it's been used in heavy ways. It's been used to kind of whack people around. So some of you are like, I'm a little nervous. Some of you are probably, will this really be relevant? Is this going to make me mad? Um, is this going to make me feel bad? Am I going to have to become like a theologian to learn how, what this letter was? But I just want you to pump the brakes a bit. Because here's the thing. It was a letter. It's a letter. Paul did not write this 2,000 years ago thinking one day churches would be reading it. He wrote it for just this small group of house churches in Rome. That's it. Full stop. He didn't think one day, you know, this is going to be part of the 27 books of the New Testament and um, people are going to use it to convince other people of certain things and that they're sinners and, you know, like this really heavy stuff. He wrote it, group, like a really diverse, hurting group of people. And they had real concrete 
lives. They were living real lives, just kind of like you are. Struggling with this, struggling with that. Trying to figure out, you know, their economics and their families and their life. And they were doing it in the middle of empire. And they were doing it in the middle of Rome. The biggest, that was the center really of the Roman world. The biggest city. And it was intentionally written to these people. And I, uh, I think that that's really important for us to understand. So today we're going to just talk a lot about context. Because if you just start ripping into Romans, Romans and it's really good to do, um, like our 10-man table groups have been going through Romans, and it's fun to just like kind of start off, but there's just a lot of questions that start coming up. It's like, what is, why did Paul write this? What is happening? What's the backstory to this? Because I think once we hear the backstory, it'll take the two-dimensional reading of this letter and make it three-dimensional. And when it becomes three-dimensional, I think it kind of has an, it's easier for us to kind of size up our three-dimensional lives to it. Does that make sense? And so today's all context. We're going to ask about really three questions. Who's Paul? What is Rome? And who is they? Who's they? All right? So let's start with this. Let's start with Paul. Some of you are like, this is going to be boring. I know about Paul. But this character is kind of misunderstood. I think a lot of us, to be honest with you, a lot of us are probably like, this guy's kind of like, if you read his letters, he sounds like he's really angry. Sounds like he's kind of really grumpy. Sounds like he's really heavy-handed sometimes. But let's, let's give Paul the benefit of the doubt. He was, uh, we're introduced to this guy in the book of Acts. And this is Luke's second account of the life of Jesus. Luke, uh, he introduces us to this guy. Actually, his name at the time is Saul. It's his Jewish name. He's a young, feisty religious leader. He's a Pharisee. And what's really important is that for us to understand, Paul, probably in his late 20s or early 30s, just kind of young, brash, thought he knew everything, you know, some of you young 20s, early 30s. Just kidding. Paul writes the letter to Rome, to the Rome churches, probably getting close to his 60s. So think about the difference in that. For those of you who are close to your 60s and you look back to your 20s, how much have you changed? How much have you softened? How much have you hardened? <laughs> What has happened to you in those years? Paul had those years. So Paul, young guy, racing around, he was the disciple of a guy named Gamaliel, who was this brilliant rabbi, head rabbi, teaching rabbi. And to be a disciple of this guy meant you were a big deal. And Paul was a big deal. Saul was a big deal. During the time of Jesus, Luke mentions that the Pharisees 
which Paul was one of the Pharisees, uh, believed in the resurrection. And the Sadducees did not. Now, there were four different groups. We've talked about this in the past. Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and Zealots. Zealots wanted to fight Rome. Just straight up, let's, let's riot, let's burn this place down. The Essenes were like, let's not do that. They were kind of non-confrontational people. They were like nines on the Enneagram. And they left town, okay, and just kind of set up shop in the hills. The Sadducees had this relationship with Rome. They're like, well, we want to keep things going well with Rome, and so we're going to kind of just play both sides. And the Pharisees had a whole different tact. They believed that if the Jewish people held tight to Torah, held tight to the law, that one day God would rescue them from the oppression of the Romans and make basically all their Jewish dreams come true. Now, this meant resurrection. And for Paul, resurrection, for anybody at this time to believe this resurrection dream there was this, singu- this was the singular impulse that united all Pharisees. The singular thing. And they get kind of a bad rap in the Gospels, but we'll get into that in a, in a, down the road. This idea of resurrection dominated all their activities. It informed all their study and all their teaching and all their praying. They longed for uh, resurrection. They longed for it. They thought about it. They prayed about it all day long. They tirelessly worked to bring it out. And their conception of resurrection was not just that one day um, each righteous individual, so each good Jewish man and woman, would one day be raised from the dead. It, It was actually way bigger than that. It was so much bigger that, you know, like you and I talk about this all the time. We say, I say a lot, it's not just about your personal relationship with Jesus and going to heaven when you die. Same thing. It's something bigger than that. They thought it was bigger than that too. It had to do with the restoration of God's purpose for the whole Jewish nation. That God, it, like in their DNA, that God had had this like, plan for them all the way back that they thought about, that they worked towards, and, and they were looking for like, the fullness of God's peace, God's shalom, which would meant it was more than just being at peace. It was like everything working, you know, that idea of tov, everything working how it was supposed to. So economically, everybody would have plenty, each family owning their own land and living off the plenty of that land. They were going to enjoy the worship of God, the one true God in the temple in Jerusalem, overseen by godly priests under the authority of uncompromised leaders. But none of that was the reality. During the time of Jesus' teaching, during the time of Paul's learning under Gamaliel. It wasn't going well. They were in the middle of a mess. 
And for, for young Saul, they were under occupation. And the first century Jews, they live under this rule of this occupying force, the pagan Romans. Uh, they were beaten down and mistreated. Their national leaders, so the Sadducees, were compromised in their alliance to Rome. And there was this tangled power structure that fed all this system of oppression that they were dealing with. And along with other Jews, the Pharisees actually believed and they longed for the fulfillment of God's promises to rescue them. And this is why we see all the time with Jesus, people are like, okay, here's the guy, he's gonna lead a revolution. He's gonna get us out from under Rome. Uh, one scholar puts it like this, Timothy Gombas, he says this, resurrection to the Pharisees indicated this larger national scenario of economic, political, and religious restoration of God's promises to the patriarchs and to, the, and to Israel through the prophets. It was like this nationalistic thing for Saul. It was a big deal. Resurrection referred to the reality of God pouring his life-giving presence upon the land. And it wasn't just the people, it was the land. You gotta understand, it's like everything connected, holistic renewal of God's, of Israel's national life was at stake. Resurrection, in their minds, would transform the entire tragic situation they were dealing with. So, hearts would be satisfied, lives would be renewed. This is what Saul believed. Like, to the fiber, to the core of his being. Problem is, is we think Saul's just like this rule follower. Like, just like a religious guy. He didn't really have faith internally. He was just a rule follower and it was all outward show. Nothing could be further from the truth. Paul deeply believed, Saul, deeply believed in God's resurrection to come. And so, like I said, a lot of times we think of him as this stuffy rule follower, super religious kind of like somebody you wouldn't really want to hang out with, just a little too intense. But he was convinced. He was convinced that him and his, his Pharisee buddies, his associates, were the key. That it was on their shoulders. And I'm sure he had some of these older kind of uh, teachers that were like, you, got, you young guys are going to make it happen. You know? It's up to you guys. And they're like, yeah, it's up to us, you know? And, and they were part of unleashing this holistic salvation program on the nation. Passionate conviction. It was up to him to move God to save Israel. So how did he do it? With a lot of coercion and a lot of power and a lot of pushing. In his mind, Paul, uh, Saul was serving God. He was convinced that God would initiate resurrection when Israel got their act together. 
When Israel started being, when they were sufficiently obedient, God would judge the wicked, purify the land, bring it all back together. And this hope drove Saul, drove him. It drove him, it it drove his friends to seek to present to God the whole nation obedient. Paul talks about this in his letter to the Galatians. He says this, "For, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my, 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 among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Now, Scripture doesn't indicate whether Saul ever encountered Jesus. I mean, think about that. He may have been one of those who went out to question Jesus in Mark 7. I mean, Galilee was not a big place. So when someone's like, hey, this guy might be Messiah, and and you're Saul, and you are super pumped about resurrection, chances are, I think it's pretty likely that Paul was in one of the crowds. That Paul was one of the Pharisees questioning Jesus. That's just me. But I I think that, I mean, my imagination, like if it was the chosen and they were like, you know, doing their things and like, oh, funny Jesus and stuff. I'm not ripping. I'm just saying there's some liberties. I could see this being one of the liberties. Don't, Don't shake your head at me, Mandy. But it's fascinating to imagine Saul's response to Jesus if indeed he knew of him, right? The land of Israel, Palestine, is not a big place. And so I'm just wondering, like maybe Paul was intrigued. Maybe Paul was kind of wondering secretly, maybe this guy, you know, maybe he was the ones that quickly was like, no, no way. This doesn't fit. Whatever the case, certainly after Jesus' death, Paul was convinced that this wasn't Messiah. And the reason was is because it goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 21. If someone guilty of capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it the same day because anyone who's hung on a pole is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For Paul, Torah was super clear on God's judgment of this would-be Messiah, Jesus. He had been hung on a tree and therefore was cursed by God. And anybody who followed or talked about this Messiah was an idolatrous sinner who was actually a stain on the land of Israel and needed to be dealt with. If your hope was to bring about this resurrection life for the whole nation of Israel, this Jesus character (laughs) was in the way right? 
These Jesus followers needed to be stopped by any means necessary. And so that's what Paul does. His passion is huge. He tries to stamp out the church. And according to Luke, Paul was present at the killing of a guy named Stephen. Acts chapter 8, it says, And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Acts chapter 9. Well, let's, let's go back to that word destroy. Listen, that word destroy is actually a Greek word that in other places it's used to talk about wild animals mangling dead bodies. I mean, this is like a pretty graphic word. Like Paul is just rabidly chasing this whole thing and trying to stamp this out because it goes down to the core of who he is. And uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Paul is like, he's intent. He's even going outside of Jerusalem. He's on a rampage. And he gets these letters, these like legal documents that says he can do this. And so he starts heading to Damascus, Damascus, which is 160 miles away by foot. Have any of you walked that long because you were that intense about something? Like, I'm sure he was just like, dude, we're going to cover ground. I'm going to get these people. You know, like he is just frothing, you know. And he heads to Damascus. Then all of a sudden, some of you know the story, his life, his whole world shifts. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now I'll let you go, Acts chapter 10, and read more. Um, I would encourage you to. There's so much I can't cover today. He goes to a guy named uh, Ani- sorry, where's Ananias' house and his sight's restored. He's blind, you know, for a bit. His sight's restored and he learns that he's actually being appointed to go tell non-Jews about Jesus. I mean, just, (laughs) this is like so insane. And a lot of times we just don't understand. There's this wonderful irony here that is beautiful. Paul had vigorously strived to purify Israel, (laughs) to keep everything non-Jewish out and keep from getting contaminated by foreign cultures. And he longed for the day when God would drive out the Romans of the land and it would be purified. And now, he goes outside. He's called, he's called to go outside and bring them in. It's crazy. 
there's only like, only God, only God can do something like that. Only God can change your heart like that. Paul spent his life accumulating credentials and putting his best foot forward and striving to establish an identity of power and honor and social status. My guess is, um, and I see, just being very transparent here, I see a lot of myself with Paul, not in the sense of like, I'm going to just rip things apart or anything like that. I just, credentials, putting your best foot forward. Yeah, that hits home. And, and here's another one that hits home, and I wrote this, and I, yeah. He would have hidden any marks of shame from others. There would have been no vulnerability on the outside of Paul. Cultivating a personal presence of strength, Avoiding appearing weak or ineffective. Man, that just hits so close to home for me. And then about 13 or 14 years go by. Paul's kind of making tents. He was actually hunted by his own buddies. They're like, okay, Paul's on the other team. Let's get him. <laughs> And he, and he flees, and he changes his name and goes into witness protection, and he starts making tents. And literally, he doesn't pop out. I mean, the next page, he, it's like, oh, and then Paul's doing this. But it's like 13 years. Have you ever had a time of 13 years of waiting? Like, is God going to do anything with me? Is God going to give me any purpose in my life? Is God going to, am I just off to the side. Now, a lot of times we think that Paul was converted just from one religion to another. That's not how Paul would have thought about it. And the other thing, a lot of times we think of Paul as just being converted from this outer religious, you know, show that he didn't really believe to an inner trust in God, which is not how Paul would have thought about it either. I mean, it was like just totally earth-shattering and yet kind of fit. So that's Paul, a little bit of background on Paul. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go down this series. But let's talk about Rome. What is Rome? Well, Rome is power. Rome is strength. Rome is status. Rome is advantage. Rome is lineage. Rome is growth. It is wealth. It is prestige. It is hierarchical. Meaning, we've talked about this before, that some scholars believe that up to 70% of the Roman Empire were slaves of some kind or another. Meaning you, there was always someone you reported to who you owed and we talk about this in ways of patrons and, and um, in this idea of allegiance to your patrons. We'll get into some of that as we go. So it's all those things, and it was about worship of anything. The more gods you worshiped, the safer you were. The more prepared you were. The more influential you were whether it was Poseidon and you were taking a sea voyage 
or Asclepios and you wanted to get some healing, or Epaphrodite and you wanted to have children. But mostly in Rome, the main worship was Emperor Caesar. There was an interesting thing going on in this city. Um, Larry Hurtado says, he talks about this in his book, Destroyer of the Gods. He says, there was a virtual cafeteria of Roman era deities from the many nations. In this cafeteria, you did not have to restrict yourself to anyone or any number of the gods. Instead, sorry, indeed, such an ex- exclusivity was deemed utterly bizarre. So imagine being a follower of Jesus in Rome. And you didn't go to the cafeteria. You looked weird. People would say, wait, you're starting a business? You're, you're needing, you need help financially? Go to this temple. No, I don't do that. You know? A lot of times business deals were done at temples. You throw on into that, that this idea of an honor-shame culture. Okay, we live in a very individualistic culture, and the goal for us in our culture, in our empire, is bringing honor to ourselves and avoiding shame of ourselves. And so everything you did had to do with that. It has to do with that for us. For them, it was an honor-shame culture, that, but it meant your family or it meant your group. And so you thought about every action you made in light of how it would affect, affect my family, how it would affect my community. The epistle to the Romans was written to Christians that were in Rome. And Rome was about a million people packed into 10 square miles. <laughs> and... Uh, It was tight. Now, who's Paul writing to? Who's they? Uh, The reason why I say who's they is if you hang around our family a lot and someone's telling a story and they'll say something like, well, they said this. And we always are like, who's they? And it's just this stupid joke we have. And I shouldn't have even said it, but because you're not really getting it. But the point is, who are these people? Verse 7, it says this, To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things you're going to notice next week is we're actually going to go through Romans backwards. blowing your mind right now. We're actually going to start in chapter 16. Because I think that uh, what, what a couple things happen is normally when we read Romans, and, and I think it's not bad to read it front to back, it's great. But a lot of times we just kind of trail off after a while. We get through the good stuff, the heavy stuff, and then we just blow through the end of it. So we don't really understand it. There's a lot of weird names that we can't pronounce. 
And, but it's actually in these last few chapters that we realize why Paul wrote the beginning. And if we miss the last chapters, we don't really understand the context of what he's talking about. And a lot of us, we've been taught that Romans is about your personal relationship with God. But that's not totally true. Paul is writing to a community that's really struggling. Historically, he didn't write it in the letter. He didn't say in this year, you know, 57 AD, I'm writing to you because, no, he, they know why he's writing. And we have to do our research to figure out why. You want to know what happened in 54? In 54 AD, a whole bunch of Jews, including Jewish Christians, were actually let, allowed to come back to Rome. They were allowed to come back. Well, what happened? Well, five years before that, a guy named Claudius kicked all the Jews out. Kicked them all out. I'm going to throw a little quote up here. This is from an inscription, and this is the reason why. Since Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, Christ, he, Claudius, expelled them from Rome. So in 49, kicked them all out. Five years later, they come back. Now, if you are, pretend we're a mixture of Jewish Christians, okay? So this side of the room, Jewish Christians, you guys love Jesus, but you know what? Part of your tradition is still kosher food, um, doing the Passover, some, some cool things that are part of who you are. And you're used to uh, doing those things, okay? And then you guys all get kicked out of Denver. And all that's left are you Gentile Christians. You uncircumcised, pig-eating Christians, okay? Are all that's left, okay? For five years, Think about five years. Think about not seeing friends and family for like a couple years because of COVID. But think about five years, and then you guys all come back. You walk into the doors of this church, and you guys are like, what? We don't do this anymore? Things have changed. And then there's a power dynamic is there power dynamic? Because you guys are like, man, we're doing our thing. We're, we're worshiping Jesus. Uh, not a mention of sacrifice or, or kosher or anything. And then you guys are like, but what about us? What about us? And you can see the things kind of growing, right? And there's already a power dynamic in Rome. There's already these things going on. Um, there's rich people. There's poor people. There's slaves, there's freedmen, there are patrons, there are women and men, there are Jewish followers of the way, there are Gentile followers. Imagine you're back from exile, like I said, and the church you were a part of is totally different. Totally different. How would you feel? 
And for three years, they struggle with this. How are we going to do this? And people felt pushed aside, and some people felt like they, were, they lost all their involvement. And, and where do you go, right? You're in Rome. There's no other church. Here's the deal, if you haven't noticed. If you don't like something here, then you just Google something else. <laughs> they didn't have that luxury. They wanted to follow Jesus. They wanted to be in community. They wanted to knit themselves together in this kind of like way that was like totally different than the world around them. But they, they were struggling. And Paul writes this letter, and what we learn in chapter 15 is we learn one of the reasons why he's writing it. He's writing it because he's letting them know that he's about to go to Jerusalem to take a huge offering to the poor people in Jerusalem, the poor followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. And he's also writing them to tell them that he wants to come visit them really bad. He's already met a couple of them. We'll get into that next week because he wants to go to Spain and he wants to preach the gospel in Spain. And guys, he never gets to because he goes to Jerusalem and then he gets imprisoned and then he gets taken to Rome and he writes Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians. And that's it. It's just like a genuine letter to real people. Now, here's the thing for us today as we kind of land. A little background, and it was a lot. Paul is writing this letter about uniting this group of people and showing them how to be a community of, the, a community of peace in the middle of empire. That's what he's trying to encourage them to do. It's about the way of Jesus, but it's always about the we. Always about the we. We just so happen to be a church community. We have a history as a community. We have a history of meeting at the Arvada Center, setting up and tearing down, COVID, being in house churches, coming out of that, buying this building, what do we do with it? <laughs> uh, I'm changing in the way I'm leading and growing, uh, but it's about this idea of unity and peace as a family in the center of empire, just like them which is so punk rock. <laughs> it's not about your individual this or that and how do you know when you're saved. And It is, but within the context of the family. So this is a we. We have different backgrounds. We have different hurts. We have different fears, we have different doubts, we have different regrets, we have different life trauma. We, have, we all have issues we're avoiding. We all have false scripts that we're living by. We all bring bags <laughs> here to our family 
And the goal is to set ourselves as a whole community in the story of Romans. We, like them, live in empire. Under the shadow of empire. And like I said, Churchill once said that empires of the future are going to be empires of the mind. We live in an empire that it's all about career, sexuality, power, status. It's all empire. What is the deal with your phone? That is so funny. (laughs) You want me to hold it? I'll hold it. I'll hold it. Our empire that we live in says try it all. Just like the Roman Empire. Try it all. Try physique. Try money. Try success. Try power. Try winning. Try numbing. Try perfect family. Try career growth. Try notoriety. Try, try experiences. All under the burning hot sun of empire. So here's a, just a couple of reflective questions for you today. We're going to end with this. We're going to end with a little bit of tension. You're welcome. Maybe we're more entwined in empire than we realize. Like if we're really honest. Maybe you're struggling with church, with this. Maybe you're kind of like them. (laughs) You're like, I don't get along with these people. We feel like, it feels like we're really different. It feels like we have different outcomes out of this. Um... Maybe you're desiring, you're really desiring to live faithfully to the way of Jesus within this empire, but it's really hard for you to feel part of family, of Jesus' followers, because of your history, because of your expectations, because of your fears. Paul's primary purpose for this is the way of Jesus as community at peace, and unified in the midst of it all, like a family, like sisters and brothers. In the New Testament, the main metaphor for the church is a family. That's it. A family. The church is made up of siblings in Jesus who are vitally and ruthlessly connected to each other and no one gets to choose their family. They didn't. They didn't get to choose. We kind of do. There's there's an easy button for us. But what happens when we press that easy button a lot of times is we miss out on the stretching and the growth and the reconciliation and the forgiveness and all the stuff that comes with it. And in a family, no one is expendable. 
No one's expendable. We have played around with this definition of what it looks like to be um, a creative minority or just like stick to each other more. Um, It comes from a guy named John Tyson. He says this, a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships added together in a living network of persons in a complex and challenging cultural setting who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. That's what Paul wanted for the people of Rome. He wanted them to be a launching pad for what was going to happen in Spain. And he needed them to be unified. And he needed them to give away for each other. And we'll get into all that when he talks about the strong and the weak, and there's so many different things going on that inform our reading of Romans. So for us, where do you need to make room for others in this family? Where do you bring in with you hurts and wounds that make it difficult for you to connect with others? It's okay. You have them. Let's just be aware of them. Let's just name them. Where do you need to clean up stuff with somebody else in the family? Where are there places where you need to ask forgiveness or reconcile? Where do you need to repair? I'm on a journey with this too. And I have this figured out. But that's our charge as we head into this series. Peace in the midst of empire. Okay? Let me pray. God, we are... I just want to pray for our family. I... I can honestly say in this moment, it doesn't matter what the prospects of growth are for this church. And I'm not, I don't feel interested in explosive attendance numbers. And God, if that's in your plan, that's whatever. I'm, we're, we're here. I'm so deeply committed to seeing this community be a family. To bend for each other. To believe the best about each other. To chase each other down in love. To be the kind of community that would be tightly wound around what you're up to in the world. that we would link arms, that we would pray for each other, not just say we're going to pray for each other, that we go out of our way to make space for each other, that we would make hard conversations like forgiveness and, and um, reconciliation a priority. Because you have so many plans, because you want to rescue so many people. And I can just think of that place in scripture where it said they will know 
we are followers of Jesus because of our love for each other. That that love would grow because of our relationship with each other and would spill out to this world. Imagine how much freedom, uh, God, you would give us in our lives if we knew we were a part of a family that loved us, that rooted us on. That's what we want. And that's how we begin. Show us how to do that. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So as you go, there's work for us. I want you to reflect on this. Because God has a plan for us. God has a Spain ahead of us. And he's got work for us to do in the meantime. So will you go in peace? Amen.